Welcome to the latest episode of The Property Perspective. This is us. Night Frank Australia's podcast covering key themes, trends and topics shaping Australia's property market. I'm Kimball Dunn, partner and joint national head of private office. And today I'm joined by Linda Zhu, director of Asian Markets, Capital Markets. Welcome, Linda. It's a pleasure to join you in this podcast. We've known each other for more than 10 years, and it's always a pleasure to be with you as a colleague at work and a friend outside work. My role in Night Frank is Director Asia Markets, and it involves us working with the rest of the business in helping our Asian investors come to Australia and invest in Sydney, whether it's a commercial office building, a hotel, or a development site. We've done this for the past eight years, and thoroughly enjoy the journey working with the rest of the business. Fantastic. And thanks for that. I've certainly enjoyed you as a friend and also as a colleague too. And we've known each other for well in excess of 10 years now and happy to recommend you to many of my clients. And you've done quite a lot of work for them too, which they all um, talk highly about. So look, thanks for the background on you. Uh, mine's a longer background because it goes back about 40 years. So it's quite a long time, but over the 40 years in the real estate industry, I've been an employee for about 20 years and a business owner for the other 20 years. So essentially my career started off in residential and I really only spent about a year in residential and property management. I realised that residential wasn't the way I wanted to go. I found it a very emotional area of the business. So after about a year, I moved into the property funds management area, which I spent four years in. And then after that, 16 years in commercial sales, about 17 years in office leasing, and the last three years has been in key client service and now the private office area of the business, which is quite unique and a real point of difference, I believe, for Knight Frank globally. And the responsibility there is really a single point of contact within Knight Frank for clients to go to and access to opportunities in Australia as well as um, globally, and a problem solver. Everybody wants someone that they can ring and get their problem fixed as easy as they possibly can. So I play that role in here. So this is very different for you and I, Linda, to have this kind of podcast. Normally we're at our desks talking to people and trying to solve properties or solve problems, but. In terms of this podcast, we were asked to think about predictions for 2021 and we've come up with three that we would like to talk about. Those three are globalisation versus localization. The second one will be the generational transfer of wealth and the third will be Australia's advantage. So what I might do is might get you just to take us through the first topic, globalisation versus localization. Yeah, Kimball, I think predictions for 2021 is going to be favour for many of our audience. In the past 10 years, there's been a large push to globalisation. But with the pandemic and a world recession, we're actually seeing uh, markets now working more locally, supporting each other. Hence, localisation is now back on the theme. What are some of your thoughts and views on this topic? We're experiencing a world recession. So countries are finding that their industries are doing it quite tough. And so with that are coming these international trade wars that we're starting to experience. America obviously 
has brought to China's attention that they don't think it's fair, the trade between the two countries, it's favouring more China than it is America, so it's imposing tariffs on China. And likewise, China is now looking at um, some of the countries it trades with, one of which, and one of the big ones, is Australia, because they're our biggest partner in trade. And of course, we're all trying to help each other, but at the same time trying to protect the industries that are most affected within our country. So globalisation takes a bit of a backward step. And organisations, I think, that are going to do really well here are going to be these large companies. The likes of Alibaba, Procter & Gamble, DHL, the pharmaceutical companies, of course, with the virus, they'll be able to move across borders really easily because they'll have workforces in place in these countries. And so for them to be able to manoeuvre goods from one country to another, I think economies are going to rely on them. I also need to raise Amazon. Amazon is a huge organisation and Amazon's now buying fleets of planes. And so it probably looks like being one of the biggest aircraft carriers as a means of getting goods across the world. So I think globalisation is healthy. It's taking a back seat role to where it was before. Governments are going to have to try and protect their industries. And so localisation will probably come to the fore. I think that the countries, because of the recession, will look at how they can help promote their own local industries, how they can encourage their own people to buy their country's goods and services as a preference for trading internationally. So I think it's going to take a backward seat, but look to these large companies as being the vehicles and vessels for being able to conduct trade. I totally agree, Kimball. I think those national global platforms that are built by those multinationals will shine in the next decade. At the same time, Australia as an example will also promote localization so that we are less reliant on our business partners. Yeah. And look, I think on this localization, we see it in our own communities. We know that there are places, bigger chains to buy goods cheaply that are quite convenient. But we also realise that with the local industries, we need to support them. If we don't support them, they fail and then we don't have access to them. I think even in the local communities, we're realising that whilst it's more expensive to go shopping for at your supermarket goods at the local store versus going to the larger supermarket, people are still doing that because they don't want the local store to fail. So I think there's this tremendous community support that you get in these moments. I'm sure when people will look at goods, unless money is the only decider, and they see made in Australia versus made in another country, they'll probably prefer to buy the Australian made good for the moment. Agreed. Of course, we've got international travel too, and we Australians love travel because we live so far away from everybody down here in the Southern Hemisphere, and we love our experiences and travel, and now we've got no visitors. The outgoing Chief Medical Officer for Australia, Brendan Murphy, who's kind of navigated us through this first stage of the pandemic, has said that it's unlikely that there'll be any international travel this year. I know Qantas was thinking that it might start come July. It's probably unlikely. And I think some of us are starting to wonder whether or not 2022 we could be in the same kind of situation. And that's going to be really hard, of course, for Australians because they love to get on an aeroplane and go somewhere or to save up the money to have a holiday in an exotic location. But, of course, it means that we won't be travelling and it also means that we won't be seeing uh, immigrants come to our country or visitors. Tourists. Well, we know that Chinese visitors spend about $8,500 per person when they're on holidays here in Australia, whereas 
the local Australians spend about $1,500. So our tourism economy is going to take a bit of a beating for a while. This is another interesting phase for Australians to have to deal with. And of course, now we've got the border closures between states, which makes it even harder for domestic travel. So I think that's another reason why this localisation, holidays and staying in motels and hotels around Australia is probably going to be a lot more popular because it's the only thing that we're going to have access to. Yeah, so this pandemic has certainly promoted localisation on every level. Yeah, so I think that's our first prediction that globalisation doesn't go away but localisation is going to be very much at the forefront of people's thinking and investors will probably think the same way. The next prediction we're making, which is a generational transfer of wealth, we've got Forbes magazine saying that the baby boomer period, which is 1946 to about 1964, so those born in those years are officially baby boomers, I'm one of those, those people for the first time in a lot of cases are going to be passing on the wealth that they've created to the next generation and typically that has been when people have died but we're starting to see that happen earlier and so I think this is something that we in Australia really haven't seen before on quite a major basis. We've always known somebody wealthy that was able to pass on an inheritance to someone else but that wasn't common whereas now it obviously is 30 trillion dollars is massive and that's expected over the next many years. Now that could be five or 10 years, but that wealth transfer means that people will have a much bigger start in life than they've ever seen before. And Australians don't really understand this particularly well, but Credit Swift do a global wealth report each year and their 2020 version has Australian adults as the fourth wealthiest adult in the world. That's behind the Swiss those from Hong Kong and the United States, and the fifth position is occupied by New Zealand. Now that's done as an average, but when you take the median, which is the midpoint, which tends to favour those where the gap in wealth is narrowest, and Australia is one of those countries, so our poor aren't that poor, and our rich aren't that rich, you'll find that we rank second to Switzerland. So it's really fascinating how, because of our ownership of real estate, because of our superannuation, Australians are, by adult, on average, extremely wealthy in world terms. So this means a generational transfer, not seen before, not understood. And, you know, Linda, you'd be seeing some of these things, and particularly with some of new Australians that have come from Asia, that have come here to become citizens, the greatest thing that they can give or a parent can give a child is education. Yes, Kimball. Interestingly, those kind of demographic is actually our core business clients here. We have overseas students from Asia. We have business migrants from Asia. We have business operators from China who are really established in China, but they want to explore new markets. And the, one of the best ways for them to do that is to send their kids here to be educated in a Western environment. We have some of the best universities. There's a lot of benefits in Australia that the Chinese community, the Chinese migrants like and enjoy and really embrace here. So for example, we see say 20 or 30% of the international students who've 
studied and graduated in Sydney or Melbourne, they returned to China to help with their family business. And then their transfer of wealth is through taking on more responsibility of these family businesses, bringing new capital into other parts of the world. And naturally, because Sydney and Melbourne is so familiar to them, they come back here and invest. We certainly help them on the commercial real estate front. If you see the past transaction volumes where investment out of China into Sydney and Melbourne markets, it's been on a steady growth. Whilst the pandemic and for some of the other reasons, things have slowed, but we actually are quite optimistic that that will continue. It's just diversification for many of them. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about the importance of property to people that you're dealing with because when we look at Australians, a lot of parents and grandparents have been immigrants to the country and so they've often come with not much money and it's been very important to them that they become an Australian citizen, that they have a family, that they buy traditionally a block of land to build a home on it so their family can grow up. That was the priority. Property is a big part of that family network and of course, as our average house prices have grown to now pretty much in Sydney in excess of a million dollars, we're starting to see the wealth created. Those people have had a simple philosophy of just simply saving or converting their pay into the mortgage and then increasing their equity by paying down the debt. And so property has been really important to them. Our property market overall is three times the size of our stock market. Of course, in America, the stock market is double the size of the property market. So Americans understand the stock market really well. Australians tend to understand the property market better. So is that important to some of the Asian clients that you have that have sent their kids here or that have come here and have become citizens? Certainly. You mentioned about the contrast between property market and stock market. If I use US as an example, their property real estate has less liquidity compared to ours. Right. Part of the reason is that the capital growth in some of the US markets is lower than Australia. They also have annual property tax, which becomes a burden for people to invest in property. The Australia market is transparent. We've got an excellent legal system, freehold, and compared to the rest of the world, our property tax is very reasonable you don't get charged any land tax on your principal residence. And over the past two decades, everyone have a good understanding that properties generally double every 10 years. Right. It goes through some cycles, but overall, it is still very much a, a lucrative return and safe. Then following on from that and talking about families and that theme, in Australia, because of this new wealth, we're starting to see family offices emerge. So we've got the founders of the wealth, the parents, who've set up a structure which is properly and professionally managed quite often by somebody that's external to the family, as in a professional manager with, let's say, an accounting or legal background, and they are charged with the responsibility for maintaining uh, high returns, you know, safety, and preserving the capital and whilst investing it. And then the family gets to participate in some form or other within that. I'm quite often pulled to the side and asked by some of our wealthy clients, what are some of the ideas that you're seeing with other clients 
in being able to pass the wealth on to our children without ruining their ambition. Is that sort of the same structure that you see overseas? It's always a balancing act, and I'm sure it's a question that troubles many high net worth families in Asia as well. But Asian and the Chinese and a lot of the nationalities believe that education is the best investment for their children. So through education, giving them the right network of people, the ability to explore, understand international markets, and train them how to manage their family assets and wealth. Over time, they will gradually give them more responsibilities, and hope that by the time they've graduated, they have started a career in their thirties, they have a very good, solid understanding of wealth management. I do find that many of our Chinese clients rely less on external professional family office. Having said this, I do see that this is a growth area for the next decade. But for the current generation who are working, mum and dads that are in the born in the fifties, in the their sixties, they're yeah. still more traditional. They like to keep things in house. So they're teaching at the same time. That's right. And I see the next generation as they become more westernized in their in the way they think and they operate. No doubt they will engage professionals like yourselves who understand the market, have the connections, and do better mm. in what they want to do. As a sideline to what we're just talking about, I do remember that some of the old criteria for looking for a house involved it being close to a hospital, close to transport, close to shops. These were some of the original criteria, and if I go back to the start of my career, they were the criteria for establishing a really good residential area. I think that's changed because Sydney's quite developed, and so is Melbourne. I think it's changed where parents, and to the point on education, are actually more interested in going and living close to a school, which might be a government school, but it needs to be a specialist school, something where let's say government. Funded school, which brings in some of the elite kids, so that they get an opportunity to have access to that education. And I think that the education,、um, or the where the school is located, or a university is located, can improve、uh, suburbs' value quite considerably. We call them catchment areas, and even in Sydney, you know, there's certain schools, say the top ten public schools, high schools, those house prices are always preserved. And in a good market, they are the first to shine. So these are the selective or the partially selective schools that、yes. you have access All to. Yes, all public schools that doesn't really need much criteria, but they are constantly top five or top ten out of the state. That's fantastic. This is an interesting one, but still staying with our generational wealth transfer, is the bank of mum and dad. There have been a number of articles written that suggest that after our four main banks. That make home loans. This theoretical concept of the bank of mum and dad is the fifth largest lender. I've read one article that said it was、uh, valued at about ninety-two billion dollars. And what we're finding here is that because we parents now have some money that they have as investment, because investment returns are quite low, interest rates being at the lowest we've seen before. It's now an opportunity to actually help their children out with a deposit for、um, real estate, or with a loan of some sort. 
whether that loan is repaid or it's um, forgiven, who knows. But it's definitely, in Australia at the moment, it's seen as giving with a warm hand rather than as part of the will, the money being given to the beneficiaries, i.e. often the children. So it's interesting that we're starting to see this in Australia. Is that common also in Asia? Yes, indeed, Campbell. It's part of the tradition for many of the Chinese families. It's also giving them a gradual transfer of wealth start something small and then gradually give them more to invest and build their portfolio from there. There's something that you said to me which really resonated and that is that we are seeing luxury residential property in Sydney and Melbourne and other cities around Australia are going up in value, yet we weren't expecting this to happen. And so we're getting some exorbitant sales taking place, prices of 20s, 30s, $40 million, sometimes $100 million. In fact, there's a unit uh, that has sold recently in a development which is only being built now for $141.5 million. And you said to me, you know, when the returns are low, when you can't travel, it's a good idea to look at investing in residential luxury property. At least you could enjoy it. And with the tradition of how our real estate has grown, gave you a reliable return eventually. Yes. I think Australia, compared to the rest of the world, our market is stable. In some of those pockets, there's undersupply or no new supply. Hence, making whatever is on the market limited supply and those families must take advantage of the low interest rate, upgrade their family home, enjoy more time with the family and also enjoy a nice portion of capital growth in 10 years time. It's been pretty reliable hasn't it? It's got a good track record of investment return. Amazing. So hopefully that explains to some people what's going on out there and the simple thinking behind why these valuable prices are being paid when we weren't expecting it to take place in a world recession. Yes, indeed. I guess we can turn our attention to the final prediction, and that's the Australian advantage. We're in the Southern Hemisphere. We've got a good track record with the pandemic. We've been able to reliably lock down or shut down and keep it at bay, as well as any country has been able to do. We need to remind ourselves that only 10% of the world population is in the Southern Hemisphere. So when we look at the terrible statistics in the Northern Hemisphere, we've got to realise that 90% of the populations are there. So it's much harder, the challenge is much bigger. But let's look at Australia. We're the biggest island in the world in the Southern Hemisphere, a long, long way away. What do you think Australians can look at? Is there reason for hope living here? Or are we just too far away for anyone to be bothered? What's your feeling? Personally, Campbell, I think Australia is the best place to call home. If you look at our government, we have a leadership that gave 100% attention to the pandemic. They didn't sit back, they took a proactive approach with trust. They made the virus numbers transparent, everyone knew what was happening. Our state heads personally was delivering the messages on TV, if not twice a day. They are on top of the numbers. They are taking a personal responsibility in controlling and fighting the virus. We're very lucky to have that kind of leadership here. Financially, the government has also supported on various levels, JobKeeper, 
job seeker, which have helped many, many of us. And you and I are also a part of the beneficiaries of these initiatives. Then the government also enlisted the local financial institutions in giving interest deferrals to many, many families in those months when it was needed the most. On top of that, people were adhering to government initiatives, staying home during lockdown. We supported each other. We have a diverse multicultural demographic here. And I think every one of us is doing our bit. The government stepped aside and allowed the medical professionals to run the country and to get the messaging out. And that built strong trust immediately. We knew it was for our well-being that the people counted that was number one priority. And then at the same time, they took the focus away from the economy by supporting it with the initiatives to know that everyone would have a job. If they didn't have a job, they'd still receive money. And the businesses um, should just try their best to get through this awkward period. And so it brought all of us together. In fact, the two parties that we have were quite bipartisan, almost supporting each other on a lot of these initiatives because they knew that that was in the best interest for the country. Only time will tell how much pain we're going to go through with all of the debt that we have, but it's probably the world's best interest rates and we're quite a good covenant to repay the debt. So I think it was the right decision and I think everybody was quite comfortable. And now we're fearful that those benefits and the stimulus will be withdrawn. We've gotten used to it and we've still got the virus, uh, even though we're managing it well. There's never going to be a perfect solution, but I think what we've had in place was the best. What really impressed myself was our state leaders, they knew those figures by heart. They can only do that when they're personally involved in those critical meetings. And to me, that is impressive. It shows that they care about us. Okay, so that's the situation right now, economically and politically. What about the country? Having travelled a lot, whenever I come back here, because it's my home, I feel very positive about returning here and quite happy, even though I've had a great holiday, I always feel really good about returning to this country. I always look at the blue sky and realise how clean it is. Environmentally, where I know that we still do some silly things, but overall, it's in pretty good condition. It's an easy sell, Kimball. Yeah, isn't it? Yes. And the climate's pleasant. Cold season's only a couple of months, isn't it, each year? So it's quite an attractive environment to be in. One of the big sells for me, though, is we are definitely multicultural. There are so many different styles of faces of people out there that make up Australia, that have become Australian citizens, that have made this country their own. We are a country full of immigrants. That's the truth of it. And we're a relatively young country at that. I like that about the country. I think that gives you that diversity, that culture, the different cuisines and musics and clothes and colours that you know we get to live with all the time. I think that's an attraction piece for our country over others. Yes, we're very accommodating because we are so multicultural. We embrace others, we accept, we try to understand and together we are one country. If you look at Knight Frank as a business, whenever we needed assistance to help a client from a certain country or speak a certain language, Everyone is there to help. And it makes Australia strong because we have the best of both worlds. It's so true, isn't it? 
And because of the global network, we can really reach out to anybody we want, make contact with them. If there's a language issue, we can get that resolved quite quickly. And we're doing reports now in a lot of countries in 10 or 15 different languages because we realise that that diversity is an attraction piece. Yeah. There are three predictions for the year. It's quite positive. I mean, even though we're in a difficult time, we're coming up with some solutions here and medium and long term for Australia looks still incredibly promising. Mm. Well, the only thing that people wouldn't know about you and I is that you were born in Shanghai and so was my father. <laughs> so we have a, uh, through uh, just communicating with each other about our histories, we've found that to be a common denominator. Yes. So it's really interesting how um, now we're working together and we're great mates. So I've enjoyed it. Hopefully the listeners will have enjoyed our podcast as well. Likewise, it will be a very interesting year for everyone. And I think that as long we are positive, we look after our clients, our friends and our family, we'll be fine. I agree. Thank you for joining us on The Property Perspective. This is us. I'm Linda Zhu, Director of Asian Markets, Capital Markets. And today I was joined by Kimball Dunn, Partner and Joint National Head of Private Office.